to reiterate this point on a deeper level, to describe the problem of our collective impotence through philosophy, let's take up what Columbo might mean strictly on the level of epistemology. Let's start again by considering not the political truth that we aren't facing, start again with something other than the question of guilt or secret desires, and just consider what it means to know something in a completely abstract sense. After all, how can we know how to live, who is guilty and who is innocent, what sort of society to build or rebuild if we don't know how we know anything at all? What does it mean to know that something is true? According to late Rick Roderick, the answers philosophers came up with in the 20th century are peculiarly deflationary. The most current philosophical attempts to understand both the self, society, our place in it, and so on, have been what I will call deflationary. Uh, I'll use for an example, I will just mention an article by uh, uh, the philosopher Richard Rorty called The World Well Lost, and uh, developed a principle that uh, I think has become widespread toward the end of the 20th century concerning philosophy's role in informing us about ourself or about the world. The title itself indicates that the world well lost. Uh, Rorty's view is that any uh, problem that's been around for 2,500 years and for which we still don't have a solution, uh, the uh, right response by the, uh, by the uh, contemporary philosopher is, I don't care. It's rather disappointing, though, to have that tradition, the great tradition of thinking in general, be reduced to, uh, to a comment like, well, gee, I don't care. We, we haven't figured it out. Uh, similarly, let me give you one more example of the profound results of uh, recent contemporary analytic philosophy. The most widely accepted theory of truth is Tarski's theory of truth. Uh, I won't do it justice here, but I will, I think, uh, uh, give you an, an account that fairly summarizes its main insight. Tarski's theory of truth is, uh, it goes something like this. Uh, Tarski says, the, the sentence, snow is white, and he puts snow and white in quotation marks, is true if and only if snow is white. Uh, I don't expect anybody in the audience to gasp, if you follow me. This isn't a theory of truth. This is the deflationary remark about how we use the word true. You follow me? It's just, it's just this is not the upshot of, the, of what we thought were the glowing and humanistic accounts that, that I appreciate to this day, developed by Socrates, Aristotle, all the way through Aquinas and so on. And in the late 20th century, what we get in area after area are these, what I will call deflationary accounts. What Roderick is saying here can be translated from philosophy into theology quite easily. The claim here is that God is dead. It's a claim that Roderick is ambivalent about. To shift back into moral philosophy, what Roderick is pointing out is that we have ended up living with nihilism. So I'm going I'm to read a little passage of Nietzsche and, and uh, try to stop there for the, to give us a frame within which Nietzsche views human beings. Now, I don't think this is all that theoretic. Uh, and I don't want it to be. I want it to be something that you can grab a hold of and, and understand because this is kind of a modern myth I'm about to, to spell out for you. In fact, I may not read it. I may just gloss it. It's a modern myth that I'd like to spell out for you that many of us believe. And let's see, after we've examined this myth, if this is more or less comforting 
than the beautiful myth of redemption in, say, for example, the Bible. Uh, the myth is something like this. There are billions and billions of stars. The Earth is a tiny one. We crawl across it for just a few seconds. And then we individually are gone. And billions and billions of eons of time before and billions afterwards pass. And the Earth eventually goes out like a cinder and perhaps the whole universe collapses into itself. And after all that's happened, absolutely nothing will have been done. Now, that's a very important myth. Many of us believe that one too. But against that background, it becomes difficult as we chip away at our daily little lives, selling shoes, selling tires, teaching class, to try to find any damn thing that means anything. On the level of epistemology, what we have arrived at is maybe something like postmodern cynicism, a cynicism without virtue or without any other known value. We have a way of seeing that is blind, but for the occasional glimpse of a ghost. We live in a haunted world, a world gone missing, but for old episodes of Columbo on Netflix or the Peacock streaming service. This is the world that figures such as Spinoza erased, a pantheistic and acosmic world, wherein, in fact, all there is is God, and it is us and the physical world of matter and history that is missing or dead. Spinoza claimed that everything is God, that there is no distinction between God and nature, but his philosophy could not account for anything but God. God as infinite being necessarily was everything that existed, but what Spinoza couldn't account for were those finite modes of existence that live in partial, negative, and differentiated ways. For Spinoza, there was universal truth, but nothing particular survived in his logical imagination. And yet, we continued on living as mere people, mere animals on a rock spinning around a sun. The universe and all its differentiation wasn't banished, but our connection to the truth of that world was obscured, suppressed, unthinkable, non-cognizable. And this returns us to Trump and how he gives voice to our self-hate or self-abasement. So I would say a way to outdo Trump is to, to see what it is that people see in him and, and go ahead and give it to him. Stop trying to make him into uh, an absolute evil and uh, instead like grant him the points he has so that and and then and then again seduce him into con kind of confessing his own mm -hmm. failure because the, the truth is the truth is Trump isn't going to solve anything. You know, it, it's not so much that I feel like he's a real fascist and is a, in himself a threat, but we're headed down a bad track and have been from certainly from Bill Clinton forward, but I would say, you know, I thought we were in a terrible spot with Ronald Reagan when I was a teenager, you know, and mm -hmm. we've not gotten, it's not gotten better. Mm -hmm. um, and the trajectory has been down weirdly since Reagan. We, it's like Reagan looks good to us now in hindsight. Right. Or certainly now. say Nixon looks like, a you oh, know, yeah. a I wear a stemmer. Right, I wear a shirt that says Nixon now more than ever. Uh, <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> That's yeah. fantastic. I think maybe I'll send you this book I wrote. I don't. Yeah, I think you might push back against it because it does try some psychoanalytic readings of Trump from afar. Called 
Well, you're not a psychoanalyst, right? You're just a writer. Yeah. So you're empowered. You can say whatever there you, you go. want. There you it's go. When, when these psychoanalysts who actually are bound by, yeah, you know. That right. Uh, but rules. anyway, this book I wrote in 2017 that is relevant to this call, Nobody Hates Trump More Than Trump, and Intervention, which mm. I really do try to explain along the lines that we're talking about is what is his black magic appeal? There's real appeal there for a lot of people. And I try to lean into the appeal and what psychologically drives Trump and why culturally and sort of socio-politically he clearly resonates with people. And I I try to get beyond liberal shibboleths about how awful he is. I mean, I personally think he's, you know, frightening, but I try to explain it. No, I say nobody hates Trump more than Trump, which is there's an immense amount of self-loathing in Trump which, you know, I mean, I do kind of do a thing about how much his father despised mm -hmm. him and hit him and, you know, exiled him to a military academy and how he can never, he can never um, live up to the ego ideal of his father, who was truly a kind of badass. Trump is not a badass. He was pretending to be a badass. And I think I have trouble explaining it now. At the time, I sort of had it figured out, but that basically Trump is an utterly broken human being who's, you know, utterly, <clears throat> I think, you know, sort of self-hating. But instead of facing the roots of that sorrow, he converts it to anger and demonization of the other, whether it's immigrants, Black people, women, whoever. And that, that allows a huge amount of the populace to take their own sorrows, their own agonies, their own cultural displacement and place it onto this demonized other. Mm -hmm. And as a kind of cultural catalytic converter, that simply works. It has psychological origins and it has cultural traction. And I think, you know, like when Trump will say stuff like, you know, that my hands are fine or that I'm fine down there <laughs> or that, the, you know, there is no, um, P tape, you know, in Russia, like those are bizarre, bizarre tells that seem to me less braggadocia and more just like, I don't know what you call it, incredible, incredibly sad confessions. And I think the book tries to argue that he, he accesses his own sorrow, does not face his own sorrow. He brings it up for inspection, converts it into anger and fury. He's like the he's like he's this fascinating psychoanalytic patient who cannot understand how much he's saying. I mean, to me, I thought you were going to go to the amazing moment when he's at West Point and he walks very gingerly down the um the incline after giving a speech and he walks in a way that, you know, he's an old man. He's almost 80. I think he's like 78 or something like that. But, mm -hmm. and he walks in this very gingerly way, holding the handrail. He doesn't look like a very military guy, but instead of just saying, you know, like, so what, you know, but instead he's like endlessly blaming the, the, the soles on his shoes. Like the, and he, and he's, and he gives like a 15 minute speech about it. It's, you know, like that. And it's like he just endlessly explains these damn shoes, the soles on my shoes, the traction on the the um, the, you know, the sort of 
incline leaning down from the stage like he just goes on and on and on and on about it it's just it's like the most obvious country western song in which someone is endlessly saying that i really don't miss my ex-wife and the more he goes on about how he doesn't miss his ex-wife he obviously misses his ex-wife and like the more trump is going on and on and on and on about how he really walks fine or his hands are fine <laughs> down there or whatever or that um that he's really a genius because he because he can draw a clock. I mean, it's <laughs> it's almost I don't know if he can hear the comedy, but I we can hear the comedy or the tragic comedy. And, you know, Biden isn't funny. So why is Columbo popular with Zoomers? It's simple. Columbo is a figure who doesn't shirk his responsibility to know what he knows. He's a figure who does what he ought to do and gets the bad guys to do what they ought to do. It's not just a comforting TV trope, it's something to live up to. 